Hello, Time Travelers. It's uh, Ben, Ben Avery, one of the three co-hosts of the Comic Book Time Machine. And occasionally, uh, and by occasionally, I mean pretty much every single time, uh, I end up recording the opening narration for one of Daniel's solo episodes. And this time is no different. I'm here to say, Comic Book Time Machine, episode 54, Star Trek's Harlan Ellison's City on the Edge of Forever. There, I said it. However, this is a bit different because I am doing so under protest. You see, Daniel recorded this episode in secret and did not make it known that he would be recording an episode about Harlan Ellison's Star Trek City on the Edge of Forever, even though when this series, the series started coming out, I had suggested that we do this as an episode because I wanted to do it. So here we are. Daniel's done this episode. He's done the first episode about Star Trek that Comic Book Time Machine is even going to be putting out there. And yeah, here we are. To be fair, when no one spoke up to say that they thought that this would be a great idea to do an episode about Harlan Ellison's City on the Edge of Forever, uh, I didn't call dibs. Uh, If I had called dibs, I wouldn't be here recording the introduction to Daniel's episode about Harlan Ellison's City on the Edge of Forever. Daniel would instead be recording an introduction to my episode. Well, no, he wouldn't, but that's beside the point. Uh, I didn't call dibs. He did... He did it first. I didn't. Here we are. I I wanted to do it. And I didn't even make it to... I'm going to turn off my passive-aggressive petty hostility. Uh, That clicking sound you're about to hear, though, right here, right now, as I'm on Amazon, this is me calling dibs by... Placing an order, buy now with one click, for uh, uh, Star... Uh, you know what? Daniel's not even going to hear this. He doesn't... He's not going to listen to his own episode. He doesn't know I'm doing this. He doesn't know I'm doing the podcasting equivalent of a photobomb here. But you, listeners, do. You do know. And so when an episode comes out about Star Wars Infinities, it's going to be me doing it first. It's going to be me. Because I call dibs. I call dibs. And for you, gloaty Mr. Glotenson, in other words, Daniel Butcher, you just... Well, here's Daniel with his episode about Star Trek's Harlan Ellison's City on the Edge of Forever. Greetings, Time Travelers. This is Time Traveler Daniel. Tinfoil hat and all. He's got his uniform on. And he wants to talk about a book that talks about time travel. And he's going to time travel back into his own childhood. So let's start with a little bit more of Daniel's backstory. Of all the time travelers, I'm actually the oldest. And unlike Matt... I remember a time when things were not, you know, media you can consume on will all the time. And so I was a kid who grew up with no cable. And I didn't have a VCR until I was a little bit older. 
and I can remember actually checking out Star Wars from Radio Shack. You know, they're all Hydra bases on a thing called a a disc, and then you had to like turn it over when you were halfway through the movie. And I could get one of those for the weekend for like twenty bucks, which was like a big deal. I get the player and I get Star Wars and I'd watch it three times. Basically, I'd never go to bed because I was just going through like the five movies that my parents would rent for those weekends. And so being a kid who liked science fiction and didn't have cable and didn't have really consumable media other than the books that I owned, because I'll be honest, I, I knew Empire Strikes Back best from the Marvel comic adaption than I did the the actual movie because, again, I had to rent it, borrow it until I was – older you know so so if you were going to have those choices there was really only four channels on my tv and so i identified myself as being a fan of the stars i was a fan of the star wars is my major movie franchise and for tv and and even though there were movies out i really equated it to tv i was a star trek fan i'm talking 60s Shatner, McCoy, Kelly, I'm talking the original series. Because the thing is, is with four channels, usually at least half of the year, someone would either, one of the stations would either have a, a replay of Star Trek early in the morning, or they would have one after like 10 o'clock at night on like a weekend. And usually it was a weekend TV for me. And you could never predict what you were going to get, but you know, it was there and to this day, William Shatner is my captain, and he's my Captain Kirk, because of those viewings of Star Trek that weren't recorded, they weren't on any sort of media, they were just watching live as they happened in re-re-re-re-re-run. So I grew up, became interested in things, went through school, went to college, Entered an age of mass media, what I could watch wherever, I, whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. Met a girl, settled down, had a family. And at a certain point, I made a decision in life. And Ben wouldn't agree with my decision. And we even argue about it. But I had to decide which star. Which star was I actually a fan of? Because, you know, you got to put time into your fandoms. And with... The help of those that loved me, I worked through issues and I decided that I am firmly a Star Wars fan, which was great because years later, of course, Disney bought Lucasfilm. And so they're firmly in my big fandom of Disney, fully entrenched. And here on Comic Book Time Machine, I believe about half of our episodes have been about Star Wars stuff. So that's been great. But Ben still identifies himself most, you know, he identifies himself as a Wars fan, but he's definitely also a Trek fan. And he's doing the sci-fi, uh, the sci-fi read-through with the Marvel original Star Wars. But you know what he's never done? He's never done an episode about a Star Trek comic. And so I want to beat him to the punch. I want to get in front of Ben before he has a chance to review a Star Trek comic. And do it. So here's the thing about me in Star Trek. I probably haven't read a, a Star Trek comic, which I have several. I tried to give them to Ben, but he, you know, he he says he has them, and that they're somewhat I don't know worthless. But um, 
And I've read a Star Trek comic in probably 25 years, if not longer. And I probably haven't watched an episode of original Star Trek in at least 15. And I probably haven't watched any of the Shatner movies in at least a decade. When I say Shatner movies, I'm talking like generations, man. Generations. So I've really, really, really out of track. But I've been intrigued. And what I've been intrigued with is I think that some major media outlets and non-major media outlets have begun to see that there's a value to some scripts that were written before in the past that were never produced as they were meant to be. But you could do it cheaply in the comic form. You know, if the sci-fi, if special effects were beyond the, the visuals that were desired, um, if the producer, the directors, the actors weren't able to give that vision, a comic book is a way to put that vision out there in, in a visual media. And so I've seen a few recently with Harlan Ellison and uh, one that specifically caught my eye. And I even tried to convince Ben, hey, let's do an episode about this, is Harlan Ellison's adaption, uh, the, the adaption of Harlan Ellison's original script for the Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. So I have here for you today, Star Trek, Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Forever, the original teleplay. Now, this was this came out in 2014 as floppies. Um, there were numerous issues. There were five issues. Um, they had cover dates from June 2014 to October 2015. I mean 14. And then it's been put together as a trade that came out in February 17th, 2015. Now, um, when I say that, like right at the very moment, Amazon doesn't have them because this is a hot book. Um, the adapters are Scott Tipton and David Tipton, who worked with Harlan Ellison's original script for the episode City on the Edge of Forever, which is a classic Star Trek episode. And the illustrator is J.K. Woodward. And I will say this, J.K. Woodward, the, he has done a beautiful, beautiful job. Uh, these are, you know, painted pages. And, you know, Kirk looks like Shatner. Uh, McCoy looks like, I, I mean, Spock looks like Nimoy. I, it's it's brilliant, beautiful stuff. And again, I'm a Wars fan. I'm not a Trek fan. And I will admit, this is a beautiful, beautiful book. And as a hardcover trade, it's a little bit oversized. It's nice. It's, it's, it's pretty. It's got beautiful covers throughout here i really really like this graphic novel and a lot of other people do too because it's got over four stars on amazon so basically what this story starts with and so i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a basic of the comic and then i'm gonna kind of compare and contrast it with the episode and what i did with that episode once i got done reading this so the episode really starts with on the, a drug deal on the Starship Enterprise. Um, and those of you who know the episode are going to be like, what? A drug deal? But yeah, there is a, uh, a lieutenant who has come to a crew member by the name of Beckwith. And Beckwith is selling to him um, jewels of sound. And these jewels of sound are, are basically a drug. And, you know, it's a five-year mission. And some of the members of the Enterprise are... 
fatigued, including this lieutenant who's come to get the jewels uh, to make a deal with Beckwith. Um, we find out that Beckwith is not a nice guy. He's interfered on other planets before. He's basically using the Starship Enterprise to set up an international drug dealing uh, ring in space. Um, so he gives it to this lieutenant. The lieutenant completely freaks out. And on shift, he almost um, causes an accident from the helm. And he goes and tells Beckwith that he's going to confess. He's going to give himself up to the captain and to the captain's justice. And he's going to turn in Beckwith, too. This leads to Beckwith uh, going on the run and transporting himself down onto a planet, uh, a planet where because they're orbiting it, time's not running right. You know, their clocks are running backwards at times. And so Kirk goes down with this giant with a big party. He's got like uh, six, seven red shirts with him and he's got uh, Rand and he's got Spock and they go down to the planet. They follow uh, footsteps in the snow and they see literally a city um, up in these cliffs, and they meet the Guardians, which are ma- many tall um, humanoid creatures who talk to Kirk and Spock and the crew about their ability to show time and to allow time travel. And they're really, really eager to well show off. We also find out that Beckwith went through their uh, time-traveling portal and has gone to the 1930s Earth. And uh, they talk about the fact that they could allow Kirk to do this too, just not to that exact same location. So Kirk, uh, he's getting a little creeped out by all this, and so he decides to have himself beamed back up to the Enterprise. But what he discovers is when he gets beamed back up to the Enterprise, it's not the Enterprise anymore. It's, It's actually almost a pirate ship of renegades. And so uh, the red shirts fight off the renegades. Rand holds down the transporter room, and Kirk and Spock return to the Guardians and ask to travel back into Earth's history. When they find out that it's Beckwith that caused this thing to happen, um, and they kind of talk in code and symbols, but they do allow Kirk and Spock to go back into our history before Beckwith would have emerged because they can control that. They can't send him to the exact moment that Beckwith came in, but they can send him before or after. Um, And so they send him before and they go back to Earth and they have to stop Beckwith because he did something that made the Enterprise disappear. And so then we get into the episode. We we find Kirk and Spock uh, basically... Spock is attacked once they emerge for his weird clothes and for the fact that he must be a foreigner who's stealing jobs during the Great Depression. They get a job uh, cleaning up uh, for a janitor who uh, also helps them find other work, such as getting Spock work as a launderer because he they convince the uh, janitor that he is a uh, <laughs> that he is a. Uh, Chinese gentleman, not a Vulcan. And so he has to do a stereotypical Chinese job in 1930s America. Um, now, the Guardians gave him some clues um, about the the center of the time disturbance that both them and Beckwith would be drawn to. Um, that there's basically this nexus of a, a, an important person or event. And basically they were given these clues that 
They'll know what it is when they see it blue. It will be blue as the sky of old earth and clear as truth and the sun will burn on it. And there is the key. And basically what happens is they, uh, Spock finds uh, this leader of a mission for the homeless. Um, she's wearing a blue cloak. It's got a sun brooch holding it together. And her name is Keeler, which means she is the key. And so our boys, uh, Kirk and Spock, they, they follow her around. They case her apartment. They go so far as to move into the apartment building as her. And Kirk begins this romance with Edith Keeler. And really, you get the sense that it's it's a long time. Kirk has fallen in love with her. Um, he's never, as long as he can remember, he's always been spacing. And so to have something solid, to have the promise of a, a future life with perhaps a wife who loves him and that he loves is exciting to him. And Spock continues to bring to him the bad news, which is you must choose. Are you going to, you know, you're going to love this woman or are you going to and, and kill millions? Or are you going to allow her to die? Uh, keep Beckwith from, from doing whatever he did to keep her from dying and then allow millions to live in a better world that eventually leads to the Federation. Um, eventually, Kirk is forced to make a choice, much like he is in the television program, about whether or not Edith Keeler will live or die. And his choice will lead to him being able to come back into the future and to regularly scheduled episodes of Star Trek, the original series. Again, I really, really like this. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I liked it and how it's different. So here's some things that I loved about this. I liked about this. This is a really dark story, especially dark considering the episode. Um, in the episode, it's McCoy, not Beckwith, who originally goes back in time. He's, he's sent back in time due to an accident where he basically drugs himself and leads to paranoia and delusions and he goes on the run. Beckwith is not a nice person. Um, he's a drug dealer and he's evil. And so you definitely get more foreboding. And and also the reason you think about this, you, you think about the crew of the Enterprise as being a happy 450 people. They're not all happy. It's a long mission. There's stress and there's strain. And so there are people who have dark sides and they are looking to do things like use drugs and maybe other vices in order to pass their time. So Ellison's story makes it a lot less cheery. And, and I'll be honest, I, what I did as soon as I got done reading this is I actually showed my uh, oldest, the first City of the Edge of Forever, the first episode of Star Trek I've ever shown one of my kids. Um, and that episode is a lot more cheery, a lot more light in my mind. I mean, it is still dealing with the heavy issues of life and death that are in the Ellison script. But, you know, you don't get the sense that the Enterprise is filled with people who are depressed. Uh, another thing I like about this is Janice Rand, who's not even in the episode. Um, really, Uhura has taken her role. Um and uh, her and the, you know, at one point, she's the one, and I, it's, again, stereotypical. She's the one who says she's afraid, that voices that there's fear. You know, I'm afraid, Captain. 
And you almost feel like the the writers, and I don't want to judge them, that they were trying to put that, you know, let's put it in the woman's mouth. Let's have the woman speak it. Um, Janice Rand is tough in this as the fe- the main female. She holds the transporter room against renegades. At one point, she's the one who busts down a door with a really, really, really big gun. You know, she is one tough cookie. And she's got a line in here. That's like, wow, this is not the Janice Rand that I know. Um, it's impressive. Um, another key difference is this is much more of a love story. Yes, Kirk's sp- uh, stalking her before, but it makes a lot more sense here. He's got an apartment in her apartment building. She would see him as somewhat of an equal to start with. Versus, to be honest, in the episode, he's a mission client. He's a homeless man. She has a house. Yeah, she finds him an apartment for for Spock and him. But she's giving social services to him. And in this, he starts out as an equal from his first pickup line. Another thing I like about the script adaptation is it's kind of frank about Kirk and his casual relationships. You know... Spock calls it out. Every relationship you've basically had has been temporary and casual because of the life that you've chosen to live. And so, again, the romance element, Edith Keeler is really, really attractive to him because it represents stability and long-term love that Kirk has never had because he has, in effect, been a Navy man who's visited ports of call and had one-night stands, where Edith Keeler, for him, represents a life a husband, um, perhaps a father in the future. It's something that as a starship captain, he's never really been able to entertain for himself. So it is, I really think, a nice touch. Another thing that's really nice about this is the Guardians are people. They're humanoids. Instead of in the episode, it is, well, it's a circle. It's a stone circle. Again, here we have people. They talk. The stone circle is a little bit cocky, offering, you know, the ability to time travel. These guys, you definitely get the sense they're just chomping at the bit to show someone what they can do. Another thing I really, really like about this that you don't see in the episode is you see a trooper. The trooper's design is actually based on Harlan Ellison himself. And this trooper uh, represents someone who helps Kirk and when you talk about Edith Keeler and how much her life represents consequence and what will happen, uh, the trooper also represents someone whose life Kirk values. But again, he questions consequence or not consequence. And it really could give you to philosophical discussions about how much does a life matter? Uh, Edith Keeler, we know she matters because in effect what happens if she can bring peace and peace movements to the United States. She's going to keep the United States out of World War II and allow the Germans to be able to create the atomic bomb um, before the Allies and then be able to conquer the world. Uh, the trooper, is his a life of consequence? He helps Kirk. He's a friend to Kirk. But is his life one that matters? For the Guardians, the Guardians, they're someone who, they're, they're, they're a group that, well, to be honest, they're, they're judging the value of one life to another. Another thing that I like is a, a real big difference is in the episode, you know, they got to fast forward through time and then it's kind of 
kind of forced, you know, uh, where they're going. It's going to be hard. Don't know exactly where might not be at the right place. Don't even know what's going on here. The guardians, they have the ability to choose where they're going to drop Kirk and Spock. And they also make it clear that Beckwith and, and Kirk and Spock are going to be drawn to this event. They're going to be drawn to this thing where again, in the TV episode, it's almost what Ben would call coincidence. It's coincidence that they're coming together. You know, Spock tries to come up with a scientific reason why they might be able to get there. And he even kind of insinuates that it's a hunch in the, in the TV episode and the comic, they make it clear both Beckwith, Kirk and Spock, they're going to be drawn to Keller. They're going to be drawn to whatever the thing is that changed, whatever that 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 point was. And so it has a story sense on why they're all coming near uh, Keller, where Beckwith, his interactions with Keller are much, much smaller than McCoy's are in the episode. And, and, and if anything is missing for me from the episode, it, it is McCoy. I like the big three when they're together. I like them interacting. Um, McCoy's not in here, well, really at all. In fact, might not be at all at all. I mean, I don't see him here in these opening pages. I really would have liked to have seen his addition into this. So I would say as a time traveler who enjoys a good story, I found the story to be good. I, I like Har- Harlan Ellison's version of it. You know, before it got adapted for the city of the itch forever, um, I thought it was much darker. It's probably one of the darker Star Trek stories I've ever experienced. Um, I love the art by J.K. Woodward. Um, I love the story differences in the original adaptation. I mean, I can understand why this is not the version they used on the show. Again, this is dark. Um, it doesn't have McCoy. Um, so it doesn't use actors that were necessarily on contract. It was written before they really knew who was going to be on contract and not on contract. Um, it's just overall a really interesting, good story with philosophical things for you to debate when you talk about the value of one person's life in the world. So I would say from this Star Wars loving time traveler, if you can find yourself a copy of The City on the Edge of Forever, excuse me, Star Trek's Harlan Ellison's The City of the Edge Forever, the original teleplay, I'd recommend, you know, if at the very least borrowing and thumbing through it. It's a good book, good read. You're sure to enjoy it if you're a science fiction fan. There it is. I beat Ben to the first Star Trek episode of the comic book Time Machine. Yeah, I'm going to gloat because I'm a gloater. Gloating McGloaterton. I'm a gloater gloating who gloats. Um, if you're interested in some of my other stuff where I may or may not gloat, please visit me at betweendisney.com and welcome to level7.com with the seven spelled out. Otherwise, until then, if you have to pick between Trek and Wars, kids, well, be safe, kids. Make good choices. I wanted to do this one.